James, Hebrews James, and we're going to be reading from uh, verse 1. So the book of James, Hebrew James, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's just stop there. Heaven sent wisdom for down-to-earth living. That's the title of this new series of messages that we began last week in the book of James. Last week was more or less an introduction. So, someone, uh, or often someone has penned the phrase that the book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its very practical down-to-earth teaching. So hence the title, Heaven Sent Wisdom for Down-to-Earth Living. James is probably uh, the least structured and the less orderly of all of the New Testament uh, epistles. And there are topics, though, uh, throughout it, themes like the Word and the Law, faith and works, prayer, trials and testings, the power of the tongue, praying for the sick, wisdom, riches and poverty, pride, humility, judging and grumbling. But these are not so neatly organized into a structure. It seems to be that he had like a scatter gun when he wrote these things down. But nevertheless, they are excellent and there are a lot of wisdom in them. And so, as I said last week, we're going to dip into this book here and there. I don't think that we're going to go through it verse by verse, but dip in here and there and see what wisdom and blessing that we can uh, gather from this most practical of the New Testament letters. Now, uh, I used to play golf. I haven't actually hit a golf ball probably in about three years. But I used to play. And when I did play, I I always liked uh, a golf course that had a lovely, easy Uh, par four to begin. Now, for the uninitiated, a par four is simply this, that from the very first time you strike the ball until you pop it into the hole, you get four goals. You get four shots at that. And it's usually a par four somewhere between, you know, anything over 200 yards, maybe two to 300 yards. And, uh, And so you like to begin with a nice, easy, a nice, easy first hole. That is to say that it's straight, that it's got no dog legs left or right, it's got a very wide, generous fairway uh, because that first shot, if you're just an amateur like I was and maybe you hadn't hit a ball for about three weeks, you were very rusty and you're out of practice. And so that first hole that had a big, wide fairway, then it was much more forgiving uh, for that first tentative shot. And then you liked a big, flat uh, green to get your second shot onto. And you liked it flat without any undulations, uh, and so that you could have a, just a simple, easy two-putt for a par four. And that was wonderful. That got you going, got you relaxed, got you in a good mood, and uh, you didn't drop any shots, you're off to a flying start. However, not all golf courses are as generous as that. 
And some of them that I have played on, uh, actually the very first hole is a tough one. Uh, that is to say, it uh, hasn't got a generous fairway, and it has got a dog leg left or right, and it's got out of bounds, either left or right. And if you get either too far left or too far right, you're going to be penalized for it. And you get up to the green, if you're lucky, you get up in two shots, and if you get up there, there's, there's all kinds of sand bunkers around it, and it's undulating, and it's just a tough, tough hole. And, and, and invariably, you drop shots at the first hole, and, the, and your head drops along with it, and you think, oh, I'm only starting them already down some shots. Now, if the book of James was like a golf course, and if his first admonition that we're going to look at today, if it was a, the first hole, then let me assure you, this is a tough first hole to begin with. No time for a, 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 an easy warm-up session, relaxing the muscles. I mean, you, you have to nail this one right immediately. Uh, you have to get this one right on first time. And so, what does he say? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, this is quite typical of James. James was very blunt. And this is very typical of James. No gentle warm-up period, no stretching of the muscles, just bang. He throws in the hand grenade right away and he stuns us with this statement that it's almost, you would think, well nigh impossible to do. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many will agree with me this morning that joy is usually the last thing you think about when you're hit with a trial? Isn't that right? In fact, it probably isn't even the last thing. It's probably not even on our radar at all. Whenever we're hit with a trial, joy is not something that just readily just springs to mind or just springs up. Joy in a tough time, joy in a tight spot would rarely ever be our response if we're absolutely honest. And we've got to be honest about it, haven't we? In fact, if you put those two words together, joy and trial, it's, it's like an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is when you take two opposite words and you put them together to describe something. Like if you said somebody was pretty ugly. <laughs> Not that you would, of course, because you're fine Christians, but, or if you said that program last night and tell them it was just pure filth. That's an oxymoron. Some of the most famous oxymorons is military intelligence. <laughs> the best one I ever heard was Microsoft Works. <laughs> that really is an oxymoron. <laughs> but here's James, and he's writing to Christians who are in a tight spot. They're going through tough times. And yet he's saying to them, count it all joy. Now how in the world do you do that? Yet it, it must be able to be done, otherwise he wouldn't admonish us to do it. Now just let us say right away this morning that it isn't possible to go through life without some kind of trial of one sort or other coming our way. We live in a broken, fallen world. The Apostle Paul said that even this body that we live in on earth, it's, it's decaying, it's perishing every day. Yeah, the inward man's renewing, but the body, the outward man, is decaying, it's perishing every day. And with all the attendant problems that that brings to us all. And, and Paul even spoke of trials that are, are, that are such as common to man. 
uh, <laughs> old Job says that man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upwards. That was a quaint way of putting it. And then Peter said that we're not to think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Why do, why do we think that's strange? It's part of life. It's part of this fallen, broken world that we live in. And then, of course, on top of all of that, because you and I are believers, then we have to contend with the evil one who comes against us, who attacks us at every possible opportunity that he can. And yet, in spite of all of that, James still insists that we count it all joy. And in 1 Peter 1 and 6, Peter insists, here's what he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And then in Romans 5 and 3, Paul says, We glory in tribulations. And I have to ask myself the question, do we? Do I glory in tribulations? Do I rejoice greatly when a fiery trial comes? Do I count it all joy when I get through such a situation? And I have to hold my hands up and say, not usually. But yet the Bible admonishes us to do this. What do we normally do? Well, the most we manage usually do is just to grin and bear it. You know, kind of grit our teeth and get on with it. And that's good as far as it goes. You know, that'll probably get you through. But there's not much joy when you're gritting your teeth and burning it. Sure, there's not. There's not much joy in that, is there? Now, I don't believe that James is saying here that we should either deny the pain or deny the hurt or, or that somehow pretend that it doesn't exist and that if we're just a little bit more positive, then we could just breeze through it. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's actually saying either that the, that the actual trial is, is a joyful thing. You remember that in one of his trials, with his thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. Buffet him. Remember he prayed three times to God for it to go away. And so he wasn't enjoying it very much, was he? He was wanting rid of it. So he, even the apostle Paul had struggles. But yet he did manage that because God's grace that was given to him was more than enough to carry him through. But I want you to notice what he, he does say. And he's very deliberate in this. He says, count it all joy. And the term that he uses, uh, it, it literally means to reckon it all up. Add up all the pros and cons. In other words, look at the end result. What will this trial accomplish in me and for me. When all is said and done, how will I come out of this on the other side? Look ahead. Will I be better or will I be bitter? Will I be a victim? Will I be a victor? Will I be overcome with this or will I be an overcomer? Count it. Reckon it. Add it up. Think about the pros and cons. How am I going to come out the other side of this? Will this overcome me? Will I overcome it? Will this conquer me? Or will I be a conqueror? You've got to think of these things. See, Paul thought about this this way. Listen to him when he speaks of his trials. In 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light 
affliction. Well, that's a big understatement right there. If you read all the things that he went through, we wouldn't call any of it light. But he says, but our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. You should underline that in your Bible. Is working for us. We don't hardly ever think that our problem's working for us. We always think that it's working against us. But Paul says, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See how Paul is looking away down the line, not just at what's happening right now, but away beyond what's happening right now. Working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When he said we do not look at the things that are seen, he's not in denial about it. But he's saying that's not my focus. That's not my focus. I'm thinking, what is going to come out of this? How am I going to come out at the end of this? How will this accomplish something in me? Peter said, 1 Peter 5, verses 3 to 5, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. How so? Knowing that tribulations produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Now, see how James and Peter and Paul, see their thinking here. They're not denying their problems. They're not denying the trial. They might like it, probably didn't. Who wants to be persecuted or beaten up or attacked or whatever? But he says, this is going to accomplish something in me. I'm going to come out of this better than I went into it. He's looking ahead. They all look ahead. And they see something better. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How so? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The word patience here means perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. The ability to never quit and never give up and don't give in. That's one of the things that God wants to accomplish in our lives. And then again, 1 Peter 1 and 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature, it means here also, and complete lacking in nothing. So the Bible writers here in the New Testament are saying, and they're not speaking in a vacuum here. These, these are men that has gone through much, much tribulation. And they're writing to people who are going through tough situations. We already explained last week who James is writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers that are scattered abroad. They had persecuted by Gentiles because they're Jews. They've been persecuted often by Jews because they're standing for Christ. 
And so it's a tough, tough time to be a believer when James is writing this. But all of them are saying the same thing, that this can work for us rather than against us. We'll have to think about it differently. And we'll have to see the bigger picture in all of this. We'll have to see what's going to happen down the road. Warren Wearsby, here's what he said. He says, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, then we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us better, not better. And that is the truth. So let us look just this morning at a few things that trials does for us, that works for us, that produces something in us. First of all, as Peter said, it tests the genuineness of our faith. Now, how many Christians have you known in the past, at the very first hurdle, the first sign of trouble, they just cave in? They just crumble. And that simply means that their faith was not as real as they thought it was. In fact, <laughs> they were fair-weather believers, stony ground Christians. Uh, look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus spoke of this when he gave the parable of the seeds in the soil, soils in the sower. And in verse 16, he says, Likewise, Mark 4, 16, Likewise, these are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution, there's a trial, arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. They cave in. They give up, they quit. Because their faith was not as genuine and as real as they thought it was. Peter said that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory, glory at the appearing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. God counts your faith more precious than gold that perishes. Faith is the currency of heaven. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so our faith is vitally important with our connection to the living God. And it will be tested. Now, gold is tested by fire. It's put into the crucible. It's purified. The fire separates the impurities out of it. The greater the testing, the purer the gold. The purer the gold, the more valuable it is. The fire tests its genuineness. And our faith, in a sense, is held over the fire. It tests us. It reveals how much of it is real. Is it just an empty profession? Or is it a deeply held conviction that will last and get us through 
until Jesus comes. Because that's what he's looking for. He says when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now we're sitting today and I suppose we're in a pretty comfortable position in many ways. But there's others around the world today who are not so comfortable. And they're imprisoned. And they have been thrown out of house and home. And their business has been closed. And they've been persecuted daily, even unto death. And the genuineness of their faith is in the crucible today. And so, does the test drive us away from God or does it pull us closer to Him? At the end of it is our faith be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the genuineness of our faith will be tested. Secondly, it keeps us humble. And what I mean by that is it keeps us trusting in His strength rather than in our own strength. There's something about us as human beings that wants to take the credit, isn't there? It's just inbuilt in us. We want to say, I've done it. The great mantra of the world is, I did it my way. The most sung tune at funeral services in the British Isles. I did it my way. Peter had a lot of misplaced confidence, did he not? He trusted in his own strength. Even when Jesus told him he would fail, he says, no, I'll never fail you. All they may, but I won't. In fact, I'll die for you if necessary. What a boast. What confidence. But the confidence was in himself. It wasn't in God. And it wasn't in God's grace. It was in his own strength. And boy, did he ever feel big time, didn't he? Spectacularly, he failed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, again, the Apostle Paul writing, he was just saying about that phenomenal experience of being caught up into the third heaven and seeing things that were unlawful for him to utter to another human being. Then he said in verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Buffet means to strike blow after blow after blow after blow. And the second time he says, lest I be exalted above measure. So in Paul's case, there was a reason for the trial, for the test, for the buffeting. Because of what he saw and the privilege he had of being taken to the third heaven and seeing what no other human being had ever seen on earth. And so that he wouldn't become puffed up with that. Say, would the Apostle Paul become puffed up? Evidently, God thought so. 
Because the human heart, the nature of it is not good, is it? Deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? And so God permitted and allowed this messenger of Satan, whatever it was, to come against him again and again and again. And you know, the reality is that every single place Paul went, he was persecuted. There was a riot and a revolution as well as a revival. Everywhere he went, the devil was waiting just to strike at him. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Who would want it? He's a human being. He wouldn't want that. Nobody would. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then he says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. I'll, bo I'll boast in my weaknesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What, a, what an entirely different mindset. Now, none of us would remotely think that we are anything like Peter or anything like the Apostle Paul. None of us has ever seen the things they saw or did the things that they did. They did. Nevertheless, to whatever degree God has blessed us, to whatever degree God has given good things to us, whatever degree He has lifted us up, to that degree... He wants to keep us humble and not to become puffed up with pride. Third thing, and what a trial does, keeps her eye on the big picture. See, this life is not the big picture. As good and as important as this life is, it is not the whole story. There is a greater dimension. Time is only a knock on the door of eternity. That's all it is. And so even now as believers, we, we have to evaluate things in the light of eternity, not time. If you're living for time only, and you're not thinking about eternity, you'll value everything according to time. That's what Wiersbe said in that quote I read earlier. But if you're thinking of eternity, then your values will be different. What's important to you will become different. Why? Because you realize that life is very brief. In 33 years as a pastor, I have buried dozens and dozens and dozens of people from babies to the 90-odd-year-olds and everything in between. And believe me, life can be very sudden and very brief. I have buried, buried it. there's Cousin the Billy's young man, what age was he, 30-something, 30 38, 39, went to sleep one night, never woke up. Never woke up. It's gone in a flash. So that's why we have to keep our eye on the big picture. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We sing that, but... 
then we bury ourselves in the affairs of this world as if there isn't going to be a next life. I know how easily it is to get caught up in all, even the legalities, the legal things, the things that are good and right and proper, nothing wrong with them, but we need to be careful. We don't get buried up in them that we forget that we're not living for this world. And it's easy whenever everything's going well and your health is good and you've got money in the bank and your family's great and everything's wonderful, it's hunky-dory. It's easy then to not even think about eternity. But whenever trouble strikes, and particularly when it persists, you have to start looking at the big picture. You've got to look beyond the present. And you've got to believe that as a believer that our future will be brighter and greater and bigger. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said in verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What a statement. Now do you think he would have said that if everything had been going well continually and no persecution and no troubles and no trials, no difficulties? Why do you think he said, it's far better for me that I go. <laughs> I wish I could go, but for your sake I have to stay. But really, truthfully, it's far better if I could go. Then he says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I haven't time to unpack all of that. But basically what he's saying is this word is never going to be right until God has dealt finally and forever with us, his people. Then he'll put to right this world. This world's waiting for us. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together till now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. But what hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's that word again. And just over the page a little bit in Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for light affliction which is but for a moment. We read it earlier. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight 
of glory. Praise the Lord. So we've got to keep around the big picture, especially when you're going through a difficult, tough time. And there's a temptation to give in or go back or quit or whatever. You've got to look ahead. You've got to look beyond it and add it up and reckon it and saying, God, how will I come out of this? I'll be stronger. I'll be wiser. I'll be better. And then fourthly, and we're going to finish here just in a moment, it produces perseverance. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Peter said, not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and that hope does not disappoint. Look what a trial can produce. Look to the end result. Steadfastness, patience, perseverance, character, hope, the ability to stand when everybody else is collapsing. The ability to say, I will not quit with God's grace and God's help. I will go forward. I will go on. I will not stop. That's what God wants in us. That perseverance, that patience to continue. And let me just end by saying this. Of course, we have to determine if a trial comes our way, is this a direct attack of the evil one? And if it is, then we will resist it. We will resist it with all that's in us. Or is it because of my own stupidity, the results of my mistakes or my bad judgment? And if that's the case, then we repent of it and we say, sorry, Lord, and we ask for God's help and grace to go on. Though if it is something that the Lord is permitting, and the Lord permitted the thorn in the flesh with Paul, if it's something the Lord is permitting, then we ask him for his grace and for his strength so that we don't fight it in our strength, but for his grace and his strength so that we may mature and that we may find our faith will come out at the end with praise and with honor and with glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll have to decide what it is. I was speaking to Claire during the week a few days ago and inevitably whenever we are talking it comes up to scriptures and what are you preaching on and all the rest of it. And, and she was talking to me about something and I said, you know, it's funny you should say that because on Sunday morning this is what I'm going to be sharing and I, I just quoted one of those verses from James that I just quoted you. And so later on that day uh, she sent me this as an email and it was, uh, it was one of those uh, pages from Word for Today in the Philippines and I don't know whether it's the same there or here. 
I don't know where Bob Gass wrote this or whether he didn't. It doesn't say. It's just a word from the day in the Philippines. And it was called, In the Refiner's Fire. And it was quoting from Malachi 3.3. He will sit like a refiner of silver. And here's what it says in closing. Fire is hot, searing, uncomfortable, even painful. Are you in the refiner's fire today? If you are, don't rebel or try to run away, but just sit still and let the refiner do his work. The Bible says he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the impurities, and he will purify them, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. A woman who read this verse at a Bible study wanted to know how it related to her walk with God, so she made an appointment with a silversmith. Without mentioning anything other than a general interest in the process, she sat and observed him work. She watched as he held the silver over the fire, explaining that in order to burn away every impurity, he had to keep it in the middle where it was the hottest. She asked him if he usually sat in front of the fire the entire time. Yes, he replied. Not only do I have to hold it, I must watch it. If I leave it too long, it will be destroyed. God knows our limits. After thinking about that for a while, she asked, how do you know when the process is complete? Smiling, he replied, that's easy when I see my face reflected in it. <laughs> when God sees the reflection of his son in our lives, then that fiery trial has done its work. So, if you're in the refiner's fire today, it says, remember, he knows what he's doing, so trust him. He won't allow you to be destroyed by circumstances or take his eye off you. When the process is complete, you'll be more like Jesus and less like your old self. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you prayed for? <laughs> be careful what you pray for. <laughs> but that's what we want, isn't it? To be more like Jesus. And so, James starts off with a real tough one, doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't spare us, he doesn't, he doesn't spare us.